Hey, good morning. That's it? That's it. He gets a whoop, and I get a good morning. All right? There we go. That's better. Um, hey, my name is Brandon. I'm the pastor of Preaching and Vision here at Sojourn Heights. And before we, uh, before we get started, I want to say something real quick about our, uh, our temporary relocation. Um, we, we started in 2009. Our, our first parish came into the Heights and moved into the Heights. And, uh, and then on 10-10-10, October 10th, 2010, we, we began Sunday gatherings. I, I wasn't here for the season. I've been here since, uh, since July. But we began in the basement of Heights Church of Christ. And, and so we're going we're gonna to be going back to, uh, for probably about two months, the place where uh, the Lord called us, where, where this Sunday gathering began. Uh, we're not going to be in the basement, not the, the dungeon, as I believe it was called. Uh, we'll be in the sanctuary. But, but these two months, this is a chance for us. Uh, this is a chance for us to, to have this tangible reminder of why we're here, why, why God has called us to the heights, a reminder that we're a people who gather. We're not a building. Right? We're, not, we're not this blue painted building around us. We, we're a, a people. Where we gather, we are. All right? Sojourn Heights is not the building. It's us, the people. Where we gather, Sojourn Heights is. All right? Now, at Sojourn, we follow the church calendar, and so we've uh, we, we went through Advent, right? So Advent means that Christ is coming. And now we're in a series called Epiphany. Epiphany is just this word that means appearing. And so Christ has come and now he's appeared. And now we're going to go through a few events in the life of Christ. And so let's get started. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was listening to an interview on NPR. Um, and uh, the topic of the interview was something called rejection therapy. Uh, and now... I didn't know what rejection therapy was, and so the uh, interviewer graciously asked, hey, what is rejection therapy? And the creator of rejection therapy answered it like this. It was a he. He said, I got tired of getting rejected, so I created a way to convince myself that getting rejected was actually a good thing. I'm going to read that one again, all right? Because this was not my high school experience. I got tired of getting rejected, so I created a way to convince myself that getting rejected was actually a good thing, could be fun, and increase my self-confidence. So here's how it works. You must get rejected by another person at least once a day. I mean, who doesn't want to play this game, you know? (laughs) In this game, rejection is success. And now... Bless him. I, I get it, right? I, I've been married almost 10 years. Uh, before my wife, I asked out most of Houston, and most of Houston said no, all right? Some of y'all got that. And listen, at, at no point did rejection feel like success. And I, I'm, I'm guessing that if I was sitting across having coffee with you, and I, I said, hey, man, just describe for me the feelings of rejection. I, I don't know that anybody in this room would go, Man, it's just warm and fuzzy is what comes over me when I think of rejection. And so here's what emotional, I mean, here's what rejection therapy is. Rejection therapy is simply an emotional defense mechanism. Right? I, I don't like feeling rejected, and so I'm going to create a way to, uh, to convince myself that feeling rejected isn't really painful. And here's the irony. Here's the irony. In a culture, in, in a day, that so values authenticity. In the West, that so values authenticity. Do, 
don't you see how inauthentic this is? That, that we take this natural and normal human emotion that we all feel, and we try to trick ourselves into thinking that we don't feel it. What is it inauthentic rejection therapy is? But here's the reality. Here's another irony. The other irony is that we all use them. All right, we all have little rejection therapies that we use. We all have defense mechanisms. We all have things that we put up as shields so that we won't feel the pain of life, the pain of rejection. It might not be the game. It might not be rejection as success. But we have these little defense mechanisms that we hold up. And so let me, let me just give you a couple. Let me give you a couple. Um, binge watching TV. All right, listen, I'm, I'm pro TV. I'm not anti-TV. Parenthood is going off the air this Thursday, and I don't know how I'm going to make it when it's gone, all right? I may be preaching crying next Sunday. You're going to have to console me. It's going to be awkward. But here, here's what, I mean, so we can look at our lives, and we can just feel like, man, my life is just not what I want it to be. And so we, we give ourselves over to an alternate reality. That's a little defense mechanism we use in our life. A, another one uh, can be work. And it work's a good thing. I'm glad I have a job. I'm glad you have a job. But, but work can be this thing where we use it to distract ourselves from ourselves. That we can get so consumed by it, we can give ourselves over so much to it that it becomes a defense mechanism that we use to distract ourselves from ourselves. Another one, control. And if, I've just, if I can just keep the grip on everything in my life, Another one, isolation, right? So I, I, these people wouldn't really accept me anyway, so I won't, I won't really give myself over to them. I'll just isolate myself from them. There, there's probably, I guess, many of you in this room right now uh, who it's been a long time since you've set foot in a church, and, and, and you've probably not wanted to go into a church gathering because you, you just feel like, man, I, I know me. If they knew me, they would know I don't really belong there. And so you've isolated yourself from here. And I, I want you to hear that I really believe that God and the gospel in Jesus has something to say to you this morning. Another one, and here's, here's one that's incredibly scary for me and for us, is it can simply be religious activity. Right? We can get so busy, so consumed by church and church activity, by coming on Sunday to going to parish, to doing Bible study, that it can actually become something that we use to distract and numb ourselves from the realities of our life. And our text today, the text that we're going to be in today, that if you'll hear it, if you'll hear it, it's going to set you on a collision course with your defense mechanisms. These little shields that we put up, if you'll hear the text today, they're going to come crashing down on the weight of it. And it's going to say that there's three ways to live. Two of these ways are broader categories that we live that we use to numb ourselves to pain, and then one, one way that we live is going to lead to freedom through pain. And so here's what we're going to see as we jump in. We're going to first look at the two ways to live, and then we're going to look at the third way, and then we're going to see the freedom of the third way. So the two ways that we, that we default, and then the third way, and then the freedom of the third way. So jump back to verse 14, Mark 1, 14. Now, after John was arrested, and if I could pause, I don't have time for a bunch of sidebars today, but if I could just pause and say this, John the Baptist followed Jesus, and following Jesus led him to be arrested. 
What Christianity offers, what Jesus offers, is not better life circumstances. It offers a better life. And those are drastically different. Back to the sermon. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now this is, this is epiphany. This is what we've been going through the last couple of weeks that, that the king is here. The kingdom is at hand. Christ has come. He has established the kingdom. Now inside the kingdom, inside this kingdom that Christ came to establish, how do we live? Listen to the next words of Jesus. How do we live inside this? Repent and believe in the gospel. Now why in the world? Why would Jesus, as he comes and says, the kingdom is at hand. Now, how you live, repent and believe. Why, why would Jesus say, repent and believe? Here's, here's, here's what I think. I think we can show this from the narrative of the scriptures, especially if you trace, if you trace the history of Israel. I, I think that we all have... Um, we can see that we have these two defaults. We either have a religious default or an irreligious default. You see, the, the, religious, the religious says, I have nothing to repent of, while the irreligious says, I have nothing to believe in. Let me say it. The religious says, I have nothing to repent of. The irreligious says, I have nothing to believe in. These are... Irreligion, religion, the two categories, the two defaults of how we live our life. And here's the, the religious misunderstanding, the religious misconception is this. That what God wants is our morality. He wants us to live this way, act this way, when throughout the entirety of the scriptures, it's so abundantly clear that what God wants from you is your heart. What God wants from you is your heart. And then the irreligious misunderstanding is is that there's nothing objective to believe in. And here's what I love about the Bible. Here's what I love about the Bible. It's so, there's just such foresight and practicality to the Bible. That the Bible knows, he knows your objections. He, as if the Bible's a person. The Bible knows your objections. The spirit who inspired the Bible knows your objections. In fact, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, uh, who wrote most of the New Testament, he, he actually addresses that concern. He, he says, uh, that if the resurrection's not true, then, then this is in vain and we're most to be pitied. Here's what Paul is saying. He, he's saying that if there's, if there's no objective source to your faith, if there's not an objective anchor to believe in, your faith is in vain. The Bible knows that objection. It gets after that objection. And so these two roads, religion, irreligion, the, these are the two broad roads that we run down and Jesus has something to say to both. That to the religious, Jesus would say, Repent from believing you have nothing to repent of. Repent from believing you have nothing to repent of. And so broad definition of, of repentance, you can trace this out of Psalm 51 if you want, is that repentance starts with this acknowledging of wrong and then moves to, to, to desiring a cleansing from the wrong and then turning to God with this new desire to see God cleanse you from the wrong that you've done. And, and the religious doesn't really get to the, I have, a, I have a need for a new desire for God to cleanse me because I don't have anything that I've done wrong. This is the religious deception. And Jesus would say, repent from believing you have nothing to repent of. And then to the irreligious, Jesus would say, the, the word I used when I said believe, it just, it just means consider something to be true. He, he would sit with you right now and he would say, just consider it. 
Just, just consider that it might be true. Just consider that I might be true, that my life might be true. Just, just consider it for a moment. And so the, the magic question, the, the magic question that there is no silver bullet for that we have to ask is, is why is repent and believe so difficult? And I want to I tell you why I struggle. And, and maybe you'll identify with some of this, maybe you won't. But let me, let me tell you why I struggle. I, I struggle because honest looks inside can be incredibly painful. Like to just sit for a minute, take an honest look at my life, take honest stock of my life can be incredibly painful. It, it requires a selfie of the heart. Was that too far? Is that too much? Is that an imagery you don't want? Too bad. Sometimes my, my wife will say to me, she'll, she'll say, I, I see X in you, or, or, or I see this in you, and I think you're struggling with this. Or, a really common one right now that we've been having conversation in my home, my wife's in here somewhere, you can ask her afterwards, um, is, is, is her saying, hey, Brandon, I, I really need you to be home when you're home. I, I struggle to be home when I'm home, and I have to fight for it. And the reason that I struggle with it is that I can give myself to work in an effort to escape from the realities of my own life. And I'm sure I'm the only one in here. Honest looks inside can be difficult and can be painful, which is why, which is why hearing what Jesus did and seeing what Jesus said is so important for you and for me, that Jesus linked repent and believe. He linked repentance with believe, that repentance is meant to lead deeper belief, into deeper belief, that belief shows our need for repentance, that repentance is not something that's meant to just heap shame on you. Repentance is something that's meant to lead you deeper into grace, deeper into grace. And our, our avoidance of repentance, these are, um, for me, these are d- religious defense mechanisms. They, these are religious shields I throw up in my life so that I don't have to take real honest stock of my life. And I have to consistently fight to take honest stock in my life. Because if I don't, here's what happens. I start living by a religious scorecard. So I've got my religious scorecard, my moral scorecard, and I start checking off how I'm doing, how I'm not doing. And when that happens, he, here's what's going to happen to you. Your, your roommate is just going to feel consistently judged. Because your roommate will never live up to the illusionary standard that you have for yourself. You will feel judged. My, my wife, our wives, our husbands will, will feel consistently evaluated. Not valued, not loved, not respected, just evaluated. Our coworkers um, will be treated self-righteously and they'll know it. Our, our parish, here's, what, here's what's going to happen. It, if you live by a religious scorecard, when you're doing well, you're going to be all in for this parish, life is family thing. When you're not doing well, you're going to retreat. And so you're doing well again, and then you're going to dive back in and be all in. Uh, and then when you're not doing well, you're going to retreat again, and then you're going to keep going back and forth, back and forth. Instead of just saying, instead of just saying, I'm a broken man, I'm a broken woman, desperately in need of grace. And then there's also an irreligious scorecard. The irreligious scorecard says you can't judge me, that there's no right, there's no wrong. And in doing that, in saying that, that 
that is a defense mechanism. That is a shield that says, you can't judge me, and if you can't judge me, you can't reject me. And so, whether it's religious or irreligious, we have these scorecards that we use as these defense mechanisms, and, and the religious one says that I'm morally superior, and so you can't judge me. Irreligious says I'm morally autonomous, and so you can't judge me. So religious would say I'm morally superior. Irreligious would say I'm morally autonomous. But either way, you can't judge me. And if you can't judge me, then you can't reject me. And so surely there has to be a third way. Surely there is a third way that, that we don't have to just live in this religious defense mechanism. We don't have to just live in the irreligious defense mechanism. And that's, I've, I've lived in both. Right? I've spent healthy portions of my life in both, and it is exhausting. It is exhausting to always live on guard from people around you. And so there has to be a third way, and there is. There is. At the end of verse 15, Jesus said, repent and believe in the gospel. And so the in the gospel, the gospel is the third way, but what about the gospel? What is it that Jesus wants us to see out of the gospel? And we'll see that as we keep reading. Verse 16 it says this, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. All right, now we need to, we need to pause before we read verse 17. There's a couple of things that you, that you need to know. Simon and Andrew, um, they, they would have grown up educated in the Old Testament. All right, they would have been educated in the Old Testament. And so uh, where they grew up, they wouldn't have had um, access to the best training, but they would have had enough training, enough education to where they would understand and know the Old Testament. And they were fishermen. And those two are going to collide in just a minute, and you'll see. Let's keep reading. And Jesus said, follow me. Follow me. Now the word he used, follow me, it's really interesting. He, he uses this word that, that means get behind me. Right? Jesus is saying to these men, when he, when he calls these disciples, he's saying, get behind me, let me lead you. All right, let me lead you. That, that Jesus knows there's something out in front of all of our lives. There's something that we all follow that gives meaning and purpose to life. And Jesus is saying, put me out front. Have me be the thing that you follow. Have me be what sets the trajectory of your life that gives your life meaning and purpose. But why would Jesus say that? How can he say that? Here we go. He, and, and how does this collide with our two defaults? And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Do you see it? No? Yeah, it's, it's hard. It, I didn't either. And I will make you fishers of men. That Jesus is doing something here. In using the phrase fishers of men, Jesus is doing something here that if you see, if you see, if the Lord grants you eyes to see and ears to hear this, it will completely change the trajectory of your life. It will it will impact everything you know to be true. And using the phrase fishers of men, this is an allusion to the Old Testament. It was a signal of divine judgment. And so here, here's what one theologian said. He said, to interpret fishers of men as only a play on words appropriate to the situation is to fail to appreciate its biblical background and its relevance to the context. So here's what the commentator is saying before I read the back part. To, to, to see Jesus saying, fishers of men, 
and to not think of it in light of the Old Testament, to just think he was saying this because they were fishermen, is to ignore, is to miss what Jesus was saying. Let me keep reading. Appropriate to its biblical background and its relevance to the context, which has focused attention on God's act in sending Jesus. In the Old Testament prophetic tradition, it is God who is the fisher of men. The passage in which passages in which the image is developed in the Old Testament are distinctly ominous in tone, stressing the divine judgments. You see, when, when Jesus used the phrase fishers of men, he was doing more than contextualizing. He was theologizing. He was saying to, to these fishermen who knew the Old Testament, the time of divine judgment is here. Come and follow me. And you see, this is where the gospel becomes the gospel. Because the, the Jewish misunderstanding was that divine judgment would land on the Gentiles when Jesus knew divine judgment was going to land on me. You see, what happened in the cross was this. In the cross, the Father cast the net of divine judgment and it caught Jesus so that you and I could be caught by the net of divine grace. And in the cross, the Father cast the net of divine judgment and it caught Jesus so that you and I would be caught by the net of divine grace. That captivating you will change everything you know. It will reorient the way you see the world. And it will reorient the way you see the words, follow me. That in the cross, Jesus followed the Father into judgment so that we could follow Jesus into grace. That the Father and the Son followed the Father into judgment so that we could follow the Son into grace. This changes everything. And when your life is gripped by this, when your life is caught by the net of divine grace, it leads to a freedom like we've never had before. A freedom where there is no need for defense mechanisms. That if we jumped ahead to Romans 7, we'd, we'd find Paul, the freedom. We'd find Paul, the author of majority of the New Testament, a man as captivated by grace as any man who's walked the earth, saying this, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. And Paul, a man gripped by grace, who is able now to be honest with himself and gracious with himself at the same time, that Paul can look at his life and say, what I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I do. And he can be honest and gracious with himself at the same time because he has been gripped by grace. This is, this is a man who knew that the Son was rejected for him, that he would never be rejected. 
And it leads us out of isolation. It leads us out of the fear of rejection. It leads us into this community where we can say, listen, I'm going to step in. And I know, listen, I, I know pain is coming my way. I, I know these people aren't perfect. I, I know that people in my parish are going to hurt me. I know that people in this covenant church community are going to hurt me. And I can give myself to them anyway. I can give myself grace. I can look at my own life as Paul did and say, I have grace for myself. The thing I want to do, I don't do. The thing I don't want to do, I do. And I can be gracious and honest with myself. I don't run from repentance. Paul didn't. But he didn't stop with honest looks inside. He kept going. In verse 24 it says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is Paul. Look at verse 19, 24, 25. This is Paul. Repent and believe. I do what I don't want to do, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is Paul. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Life inside the kingdom. Repent and believe. I've heard it said once, I think by a guy named Steve, Steve Timmis, that for every one look at your sin, you need five looks at Jesus. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. And if we can be this kind of people, if we at Sojourn Heights, in the broader Sojourn family, if we can be this kind of people, people who embrace our own need for repentance and turn continually to the grace of God in Christ, here's what's going to happen. Two things are going to radically change. One, one, we'll have an immense amount of grace for ourselves and for one another. So we're, we're about, uh, on Wednesday night, we're going to be gathering in this room and we're going to have a racial reconciliation forum. And being someone captivated by your own need for grace, here, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have the ability and the freedom to look at people who holistically disagree with you and walk in grace with them. You're actually going to be able to be a listener and a learner. You're going to have the humility to say, I think this, you think that, and we can still be brothers and sisters, and we can still have a family conversation with honesty and grace about how we at Sojourn become the agents of reconciliation we so long to be. And then the second thing that's going to change is we're going to see our city differently. We're going to see our city differently. That there's that there's an elitism that gets destroyed under the weight of the gospel. We are, we are a church for all of Houston. And here's how we're a church for all of Houston. We are in this, this Sojourn Heights, Heights part of the city. We have Sojourn Montrose. We have multiple Sojourn congregations beginning, uh, are, are set to begin in the coming years. And our, our dream is this day when there would be a faithful gospel representation in every neighborhood in the city. That there would be this local church meeting the particular needs of that neighborhood in the city. And so we, we don't dream about a, a big Sojourn Heights church. We, we dream about a day when there will be a Sojourn congregation in every neighborhood inside the city of Houston. North, south, east, and west. There is no part of the city that we don't love. But I need to tell you what we have to be on guard against. And, and, and by we, I'm talking about me. 
We have to be on guard against the subtle elitism that can come from where we live and what we do for a living. So I, I love our, our neighborhood. I mean, I, I love the Heights. CNN ranked it fourth best neighborhood in the country, and they were wrong. We're third, I think. Um, <laughs> I love our neighborhood, but, but you know what else I love? I love telling people I live in the Heights. And there is both a beauty and a real danger to that. There is an elitism, a cultural elitism that gets destroyed under the weight of the gospel. And we have to have that be destroyed so that we can really become sojourn for all of Houston. North, south, east, and west. And our prayer is that we might be this kind of people, this kind of people so gripped and so caught by the net of grace that we're able to see our own need for repentance. And that in seeing our own need for repentance, that we might be able to extend grace to one another. That we might be able to extend grace to ourselves, That we might be able to extend grace to our neighbor. And that we might be able to love all of our city. Our dream is this day when Sojourn is represented in every neighborhood in the city that there's a church meeting the particular needs of that neighborhood and we need the grace of God to cut at the root idols in our lives to most faithfully pursue that vision and that dream. Know that we might be, that we might be that kind of people. It takes His grace. It'll require an abundant amount of mercy and we're begging Him to pour it out. Let's pray.